We will be turning in our Bibles this morning for, for, the, for the sermon to the same passage that, that we just read. And how great is the need, or our need this morning, that the Lord would be near us. And for that purpose, we will bow just one more time before we come to the preaching of the Word this morning. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, now has come the time that Thy Word would be preached and proclaimed. We ask that in all faithfulness it would go forth. Lord, stand beside Thy minister. Sit beside those in the pew. Lord, bless us. We have come to Thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to be looking particularly this morning at verses 10 and 11, but in what we have just read, you will find the Apostle Paul rejoicing when a church had gone, had gone through great sorrow. We even read this in, in verse 8, where verse eight, where Paul, the one that caused their sorrow, says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. And the word repent in, in this passage it could be translated regret. So Paul, is, is, he does not regret making the church sorrowful, though he did regret that it was necessary, that he had to do it. Now, what was it that he wrote to them that made them sorry? And he wrote to them to, to deal with a sin, a sin in the church that was not even approved of in the pagan world even the Gentiles thought that this was, this was wrong. We find this sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where there was a man in the church who was, he was having an intimate relationship with his mother-in-law. And this was most likely while his father was even alive, and everyone knew that this was the case. But instead of the church disciplining the member, they were filled with pride, pride about their own spiritual purity, perhaps pride even about the fact that they would allow this in their church, that they were gracious enough to let it continue. But Paul had to deal with this sin, and he regretted that he had to, that he had to hurt the people there, that he had to cause them sorrow. He took no pleasure in it. As a father, as a loving father, takes no pleasure in disciplining his own children. But he no longer, feel, he no longer feels any regret. And he doesn't feel regret because of the kind of sorrow that his epistle produced in the Corinthian church. As we look at verse 9, we see, we see this where he says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Listen to this. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. And when Paul wrote that first epistle of rebuke, he had sent it to, the, he had sent it to the, the church in Corinth, and then he had to wait. He had to wait for the letter to be delivered. He had to wait for it to be read. had to wait for them to react and to take action or to take no action with his Epistle, But then he had to wait even longer for Titus to return to him to bring word of what happened. What did that epistle of rebuke, what did it cause within them? 
And he was waiting to hear back what kind of sorrow that epistle would produce. What kind of sorrow. But when Titus returned to him, he was comforted. And he even rejoiced because of the kind of sorrow that it did produce within them. And he calls this sorrow godly sorrow. In contrast to the sorrow of the world. But then he goes on in verses 10 and 11 to tell them what what the effects of godly sorrow are and what the results of it were. The effects of it are found in verse 11 and the results are in in verse 10. You often find this in, in the apostles' writing. Oftentimes their arguments or the way they frame things are not exactly as we would understand them, as being perhaps effects of something to what they produce. But... Why, why does Paul, why does he do this? Why does he talk about the effects of godly sorrow and, and what godly sorrow produces? And why should we consider what, what godly sorrow is and what it is like? Well, the answer is that we too often can find ourselves experiencing sorrow. Sorrow over our own sins. We can hear a sermon and it it shines light on a sin in our life, perhaps that, that we had just let continue on for a long time. And we're pricked in our hearts when we see that. And it can bring sorrow. Or when we read the Word of God, we can be convicted about, it seems, all the things that, that we read of that we wish we would be, but we're not. And the things that we desire to be, more like Christ. We see our sins on its pages. And that brings sorrow. And when we feel that sorrow, it can be discouraging. It can lead to discouragement, to to inactivity, to despair. It can lead to worldly sorrow, which the Apostle Paul says only produces death. Or it can lead to godly sorrow, which is worth rejoicing over. So oftentimes we can find ourselves just like the Corinthian church. And we need to know when we feel conviction, is our sorrow a godly sorrow? Or is it a worldly sorrow that will do us no good? We also we need to know how we should think about godly sorrow. How should we view our own conviction and the sorrows that we feel when, when our sin is pointed out, whether in sermons or in reading of the Scriptures? So that we won't be discouraged when it comes, but rather we would be made to rejoice that I praise the Lord that I've been made sorry. I've been caused to sorrow with what He has shown me. And we can be encouraged by our sorrow, by godly sorrow, when we see what it, what it does in us. And that is why I want to bring you this message this morning that I have simply entitled, Godly Sorrow. Godly Sorrow. Sorrow, And we will be looking at the effects and the results of godly sorrow as, as, Paul, as Paul looked at them. But we're going to do it in, in the reverse order. Looking at the effects in verse 11 and then the results in verse 10. So as my first point this morning, we see godly sorrow's effects. Godly sorrow's effects. And the first of these termed eagerness. Eagerness. And this effect is found in verse 11 when it says, For behold, this selfsame 
thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. The word carefulness there, it, it has the idea of, of haste, of making an earnest effort towards something. So you find out something and you immediately take action from, from what you have learned or what you have heard. And what Paul is stressing here for the Corinthians is that their sorrow did not produce inactivity, as is often it can be the case for many. You know, when, when there is sorrow over some, some failure, what we often feel that we wish to do in our hearts is nothing but continue to sorrow over that failure. We failed. And often the first thing that we think is not to, not, we don't often think of activity as being the first result of our sorrow. And the temptation at the church at Corinth would be to fall into a downward spiral of, of defeatism, of fearing that they could never make things right, of falling into a pit of despair. But this is, this is not what God intended. It's not what, what Paul intended, the Holy Spirit intended when, when that epistle of rebuke came. When, when even when Christ brings sorrow into our lives, He intends for the sorrows that He inflicts to produce in us action. Action to do away with the sin that has caused our sorrow. And, and that's the, the reaction that you find in the church in Corinth. And they immediately cast out the offender, the one who had committed the sin regardless of the hurt and the difficulties that may come with the action, they did not hesitate to obey what the Apostle Paul had commanded them. They quickly did whatever was necessary to obey the will of the Lord. And they did it because of godly sorrow. When we have experienced, when we do experience the finger of God pointing out a sin in our lives... At least in my own experience, I've found the devil, he quickly comes behind to bog us down, to start trying to churn up despair, feelings of failure. So you end up in this downward spiral, and it's really a downward spiral of inactivity, of no eagerness. But the Lord doesn't want us to be bogged down in despair. And that's not why he pointed out sin in us. That's not why he does. The Holy Spirit is ready, even when we feel convicted about our sin, He's ready to come beside us and help us immediately in eagerness to fight against sin. For that the analogy of the father correcting a son. When a father corrects his son, he doesn't want his son to just feel the, the, the rebuke from his father and then just, just curl up in defeatism and in, in inactivity. He wants his son to take action, to do away with the sin. When we feel our hearts grow heavy, the sight of our own sinfulness, and we ought to ask ourselves, okay, so what what are we going to do next? What are we going to do? What, What must be cast out? What sin must be fought against? And we must not hesitate to do it. And the sorrow that we feel in our hearts, that godly sorrow, helps us in our eagerness to do away with it. Then we also see, secondly, what it produced, produced vindication. Godly sorrow had, had brought pain with it to the Corinthians. 
They felt the, the hurt and the shame of the sin, especially because they had allowed it. And we know that the pain that, that sorrow brings with it. And we know what that, that shame can often feel like. I don't know if y'all can remember a time where perhaps your father or your parents told you to do something or told you not to do something, but you didn't do it or you did it, and then your, your parents found out. The pain, our reaction when we feel this, is often a, it's a sorrow, and we want the sorrow to go away. We want that shame to go away. But Paul emphasizes something in that sorrow that came to them. It was actually a blessing to them to feel that pain. And that is that godly sorrow, it, it ended up vindicating them. That's what it means when it, when it says in verse 11, clearing of yourselves. The guilt of what they had allowed to happen in their own church would have been weighing heavily on them. This guilt, it produced actions it, that the sorrow produced actions that cleared them of that guilt that they were feeling. They were clear in the matter. They were vindicated. And what I mean by this is that before their hearts were filled with godly sorrow, the world could look at the church at Corinth because they knew about this sin. Paul says... It is commonly reported among you. And so the Gentiles knew of this. But the, the outside world could point the finger and say, that's a church that, that allows fornication within. They were to point out sins and accuse them. And God himself could even say, that's a church that, that allows fornication to go on within its own walls. And it would be true. But after godly sorrow came, after that pain, this accusation against them, it was no longer true. They showed themselves to be a church that would not tolerate sin. And God, God does not keep a logbook of their former sins, open it up and to recount the sins to them and to bring them down. They're vindicated. The Lord's not going to bring it up again unless it would be just to cause rejoicing in their hearts that the Lord had delivered them from it. The same is true for us. You know, none of us like the guilt that comes with godly sorrows. But experiencing that, that guilt, it's a way of causing us to soon be vindicated of the sins that we sorrow for. We go on. In verse 11, we see thirdly, that godly sorrow produced hatred. In verse 11, this is called indignation. And I believe that this is, this is a hatred of the sin itself, not of the sinner that had committed it, which we shall see later. But why did they hate it? It wasn't sin that was physically hurting anyone in the church. You know, it, was, it was about the personal life of one of, of their own members. Well, they hated it because it was hurting the testimony of the Corinthian church, for one thing. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians that the sin, it wasn't found amongst the Gentiles. And you know, as I've already said, the Gentiles knew that it was in the church. And this was a people that claimed to be striving to live like Christ. 
But they accepted sin that is even worse than the Gentiles would have allowed. And so, because of this, the gospel message that was being preached from the church there would have been made distinct to the Gentiles. You imagine that. This Corinthians coming and, and, and claiming that they are Christians, that they're living for Christ, that they're repudiating the sins and the ways of the world. They're a bunch of hypocrites, at least in the, the eyes of the Gentiles. And there's no point in them giving up sin to, to join with this church or to, to suffer any of the persecutions that, that they would face because their own people don't even give up the sins. They allow it. So the Corinthians began to hate the sin. They hated it. That was hurting their testimony. They also hated it because it would even promote sin amongst their own members. If this sin was acceptable in the church, can you imagine how a new believer would react to that? You know, a new believer sees the sin and it's allowed. But then this particular temptation, a separate one, comes up for them. And they look to the church and there's no reason why they shouldn't indulge. There are other sins that are fine in the church. There are other things that are undisciplined. I can, I can indulge. I can have a little bit of that. So it would, cause, it would cause a fellow believer to stumble. This sin would do that. So they hated it. They came to hate it when they saw what it was doing. And they hated it lastly, and most importantly, because it was a sin against God. This sin that was acceptable, accepted in their church, was one of the sins that, that caused Christ to be crucified for them, that nailed their Savior to a tree, that caused the wrath of God to be poured out on Jesus Christ. One of those sins, it's in their church, and they know about it. And the Apostle Paul has pointed it out. And because of that, and the sorrow that was in their hearts over this, they hated this sin. And godly sorrow should work that same hatred in our lives. A hatred of the sin that, that causes the gospel message really to stink to those who, who we witness to. A hatred of it because it, it does, our own sins can cause other believers to stumble. And a hatred of it because it's, it's against God, it's against Christ. But if godly sorrow produces such hatred, which it does, then we should be joyous, joyous to have godly sorrow, that we may hate our sins. But we see now, another thing that it produced was fear. And what is, what is Paul talking about here in verse 11 when he, when he talks about fear? What fear within them? A fear... Was it a, fin, a, a fear of the sin, a fear of the sin itself that was allowed to go on, or a fear of God? I believe that you know, Paul is saying that this godly sorrow produced in them what we see throughout the Scriptures when it uses the word fear, an extreme reverence for God, a humbling, reverential fear. You know, while at, at times in, in your Bibles when you read the word fear, it, it really, it does mean being terrified of something. You can even see that where the Greek itself, the word you probably recognize is phobos, where we get the term phobia from. You're terrified of something. But 
when it is when it is used, what what surrounds it, the context of it in my studies was that when you fear something, when there is a phobia, you don't act against it. So to say, if 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 Paul was trying to say that they had a fear of the sin, then that would be saying they were afraid to do anything about it. That is what this word, what usually comes along with it, is a fear of inactivity against what you are fearing. Whether it's talking about a, you know, actually being terrified of something, or whether it is that extreme reverence that it often refers to. But this is the opposite of what it produced in the Corinthian church. They acted against the sin. So they had an extreme reverence in their heart for God. They feared God because they saw that the sin in their church, that it was against Him. And you can imagine what this, would feel, what this feels like. Is if, let's say, you're speaking, with, you're speaking with a friend, and the Lord Jesus in His flesh is standing right next to you. But your friend begins to speak in all, all kinds of filthy language, saying all kinds of things, all really inappropriate. And that feeling that you think you would have in your heart, that hesitancy that, that you shouldn't speak like this in front of the Lord. You should not do this. It is wrong. It's especially amplified when Christ himself is standing there. That is the fear that this is referring to, a fear of reverence for how can you do this? Christ stands here. It's not a fear of the one who is doing the offending. It is the fear of the one who is offended. That is God. That's one of the effects of of godly sorrow that we should have in our hearts when our own sin is exposed in any way. It's not a fear that, that God will cast us off. It's not a fear that His love will grow weaker for us. But it's a godly, reverential fear that this sin is before him and that he sees it. And because of that, we, we want to do it away with it. We want this sin out of his presence. We want it done. You can see then from that how, how good of a thing it is to have this reverence, this godly, that, that comes from godly sorrow that we would join hands with God in casting away any sin in our lives that is before Him, when He has pointed it out, when He has sent godly sorrow into our hearts. But we go on, and we see next that it produced a longing. And this is a word that, that I have used for vehement, vehement rather desire in, that we find in the verse. And I just wanted to say the reason I changed it is not because it is a bad translation, it's because... I thought it would show the difference in the words more clearly, especially from our first point, eagerness. When you try to think of the difference between vehement desire and eagerness, it's, you know, in our own minds, even with, I should say, the, the, the term that's going to follow this, zeal, producing zeal in their hearts. When we try to think of what's the difference between vehement desire and zeal, Perhaps in our mind we, can, we, there's, we see a difference there. There's a difference how we would use like someone with a, a vehement desire and zeal. But it's hard to really describe it. It's hard to describe the difference between those two terms. So that's why I use the word longing. 
But I also want to stress that the Holy Spirit is not being redundant in using these terms. There is a difference. There is something that He wants to stress. And I believe that it is because while these words have some overlap, they do highlight different things. Vehement desire particularly is a, a longing. It's like the feeling of our hearts reaching out for something. We want something. Wishing that we had it. It's an extension of the, the emotions of our hearts reaching out, reaching out to something. And what the Corinthians were longing for from their godly sorrow was to experience again fellowship with their Savior. They longed that the sin in their church would be corrected. We long for it. Our hearts go out and we want it out. We want it outside of our doors. We want it cast out. This is emphasizing also that they didn't have this longing before. Before godly sorrow came. They were content with the sin that was prevalent in their church. They had no longing of heart to cast it out. But now, there is this painful longing. Things have got to be set right. When we look at our own hearts, we might not enjoy the feeling of we might not enjoy the feeling of longing for our sins to be corrected, but it is a very good thing. It's something we should rejoice over that our hearts do long. Instead of the longing that comes from worldly sorrow, which is just that shame would be taken away and we would be left without sin. But that's why the Lord brings godly sorrow, that our hearts would long to do away with sin, that we would enjoy fellowship with Him again. But we move on now to zeal. And where vehement desire was, it was a longing for something good. Zeal puts, puts an emphasis on a, it's a fire that is burning within, and it produces activity. And this is the word that that is used in the Scripture of of Christ when He he fashioned a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. And He he flipped their tables. He was filled with with righteous anger. And His disciples, when they saw that, they they remembered a passage in the Old Testament that was prophesied of Christ where it says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. You see, then this isn't just a this isn't just a longing of a vehement desire. This is zeal. This is a fire in activity that produces that you really see in actions. And I think we, or at least I hope that we've seen it to some degree in our own lives, some spark of zeal, or even the life of another Christian. What it looks like when someone labors with a burning passion for the things of God. And that is what godly sorrow, that's what it formed in the hearts of the Corinthians. It gave them zeal. It gave them a burning fire. They did not coldly carry out the Apostle Paul's instructions to correct correct the sin. They got to work, and with zeal they performed it. We might, when godly sorrow comes, we may weep over our sins when hopefully we experience godly sorrows. But those tears, they ignite zeal in our hearts. Zeal that you see in our actions to do away with sin. 
and to live in a Christ-like manner. And that makes godly sorrow something very sweet to us. But we see, I believe lastly under this, revenge. Revenge. And I, I contemplated terming this, re-terming it, I should say, maybe vengeance. Because often in our day there is there's an unholy promotion of, of revenge. You know, it's, I, I cannot tell you how many movies I have seen where the main point of the whole story is someone has done me wrong and now it's revenge time. And the word they often use is revenge, though the word really isn't, it isn't an, an evil word. It isn't bad. And so I wanted to stick with it instead of vengeance. And much like the English term, the Greek, it has the idea of carrying out punishment for a wrong that was committed. And this is a lawful punishment. It's not something that they take into their own hands when they shouldn't take it into their own hands. It is not unjust in any way. It doesn't have the idea of someone punishing someone when they have no authority or right to do so. In the case of the Corinthian church, we actually have Paul's verdict in 1 Corinthians against the sin that was being committed in their church. And with the authority that God had invested in him, that was given to him by Jesus Christ, Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This punishment that the Apostle Paul called for was carried out by the Corinthian church. They corrected the sin. It was fulfilled to the fullest. And it was done eagerly with a hatred of sin. It was done in the fear of the Lord with a longing that things would be set right. It was done with zeal in service to God. This will be the, the action, the activity in us that godly sorrow, it always, godly sorrow always produces this. When we, when we consider all of the effects, what godly sorrow promotes in us, what it works in us, the effects that it produces in our own hearts. Really, it's something, something sweet. Sin being cast out in fellowship, richer fellowship with God. But as we come now, as we've been looking at the effects of godly sorrow, I want to come now lastly and briefly to godly sorrow's results. When you bring all the, all the effects of godly sorrow together... You see what it is intended to do. Or, as I have termed it in this point, its results. There are two of these. The first of which is healing. And as we turn to this, we look now at verse 10, where we read, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The word word salvation... in, in our text there, it has the idea of, of health and, and in, or life. And in this context, I don't think that it, is, it can be referring to 
to salvation as someone being saved. It's that once for all event in our lives where, where we turn unto the Lord and we are justified. Though it is true that, that godly sorrow does accompany salvation in that sense that we understand it as someone being justified. Rather, I think it's saying that, is that spiritual life was preserved and strengthened when godly sorrow did its work. You know, when, we, when we look at the verse that, where Paul was pronouncing his judgment on the offender, he said, "...to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." Paul was trying to, he was going to inflict hurt on this man with this judgment. But this hurt would only lead to life. That his spirit would be saved. And the pain of separation that this man experienced did lead to his restoration. And we read this all the way back in, in, second, in second Corinthians at the start of it in chapter 2. We read, so that contrary wise, a little context for this, the church had cast him out and it was not willing to accept him back into the fold. They were so zealous and... and and really just taking Paul's command to the extreme, and they cast him out with no thought of bringing him back in. So the Paul writes this, like, okay, it's time to bring him back because he had repented. Where Paul writes, so that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. You see there what I stressed earlier about the Corinthian church hating the sin and not the sinner. And we see that even in the verse that followed what we just read, where Paul tells them, Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. And you really do see the picture of the father correcting a son, the son again in that. What's, what is the end result of correction? It's for, it's for the benefit, it's for the health, it's for the life of the son that, that is being corrected. It's not because he hates him. It's because he hates sin. Because he hates what, what it produces. It's so the father and the son could live together in a richer and better way. It's for their health, for their benefit. If our hearts are burdened by godly sorrow... Much like a father and the son, it's not because God is driving a wedge between us and him and that he's shoving us away when he brings godly sorrow and saying, get away from me or anything like that. It's because he is, trying to, he is bringing healing with, with godly sorrow for the wrong that has been done. It's because he's trying to draw his people closer, not drive a wedge that godly sorrow comes. We see lastly, under what it produces, produces repentance. And the word repentance properly means a change of mind about something. You change the way you think about it, followed by a turning away from it. And always those two things, a change of mind and a change of direction. I hate it, so I turn away from it. And that's exactly what happened in the Corinthian church. They saw sin differently. They thought about that sin differently 
than before godly sorrow came. But because of that, afterwards they did away with it when that change did come, when they saw the sin for what it really was. And that's what the apostle, that's what he's saying in verse 10, when we read, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Paul hurt the church with his rebukes, but he did it so that the offender would repent of his sins, and so that the church also would repent of its sins, of letting sin continue. But today, you and I, we have a Heavenly Father that He rebukes us at times. He points out sin in our lives, and because of that, we experience godly sorrow. But with that godly sorrow, when we find ourselves experiencing that, sorrowing for sin, we ought to open our Bibles to this passage or remember it if we can and ponder, what, what is this sorrow supposed to be doing in my heart? Well, it's supposed to bring carefulness to us. It's supposed to produce carefulness, an eagerness to do away with the sin. It is to come that we may be vindicated of sin. That we would hate the sin. That we would fear our God. That we would have a longing to make things right and a zeal in performing whatever the Lord would have us to do. That we would take vengeance against sin. To do what is required. What the Word of God requires us to do to do away with it. And in all these things, when godly sorrow comes, it really is a sign that we are the children of God because we are the ones who are being corrected by Him. We are the ones that He is trying to heal, that He is healing of the damage that sin has done, that we would repent of our sins and turn unto Him. That's what godly sorrow does. That is the sorrow that we experience. That is the sorrow that we rejoice in. And we should be thankful unto the Lord for. So as we experience it, as it comes into our lives, I pray that we will be thankful. Knowing that God has not sent it in vain. He's not made us sorry without a purpose. But even in our sorrow, He has the intention to make us more like Christ that we would do away with sin and be ours our Savior. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before Thee this morning Lord, with, with hearts that know what it is to sorrow over our sins, that know what it is to have a godly sorrow. Lord, we ask that that when it comes, that we would not despair, that we would not have a sorrow that the world has that just wants to, to hide the sin or that, Lord, only has filled with regret without activity. Lord, we ask that you would ignite a fire in our hearts, that we would accept the sorrows that you send to us, that we would do away with sin, that we would be more like our Savior. For we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For His glory, His name, Amen.